It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Monday, August 30th, 2021. Welcome to the Guy Benson Show. I am your host, Guy Benson, coming to you live from New York City and the worldwide headquarters of Fox News and the Big Apple. Glad to have you along every weekday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. And if you can't catch us live, there's a free podcast on demand every day. No charge to you. GuyBensonShow.com. We've got a lot to get to, including our first guest here in just a moment. Steve Hayes will be here from the Dispatch, a Fox News contributor, in the next hour. I'm also very excited, and if you're watching on the live stream at Fox Nation, I'm holding up the book. Kirk Herbstreet of ESPN is out with a memoir called Out of the Pocket. And we will talk to him about the book. I read it over the weekend in college football. That's coming up in our final hour, the happy hour today in just about two hours from right now, the 5 p.m. thereabouts on The Guy Benson Show. Fox News alert as we begin. The case count for coronavirus nationwide, now 38.8 million. That's cumulatively over the course of the pandemic. The real number is much higher than that. The death toll in America, 637,356. And it continues to rise. The Dow is up slightly, up seven points at this hour. We will keep an eye on that over the course of the next 53 minutes. We will, of course, get to the number one issue, the number one story right now, which is Afghanistan, for much of the show today. A little bit of COVID in there as well. But we begin with our lead story with our first guest. Janice Dean is senior meteorologist here at Fox News. She's a best selling author. Her most recent book is Make Your Own Sunshine, and she has been tracking very carefully. Hurricane Ida, and we see search and rescue efforts underway in the state of Louisiana. More than a million people without power right now. This is a very powerful storm. The images all over TV of some of the wreckage and destruction uh, have been pretty harrowing. And Janice, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Guy. What can you give us in terms of the very latest and the status of this storm and what destruction we are seeing in its wake? Well, it's unfolding, and this is always sort of the case with these landfalling hurricanes. You know, you have the buildup, you have the landfall, and then sometimes it takes 24, 48 hours to really know the scope of the damage. You know, it's hard to get into some of these areas uh, for whatever reason. They're flooded, uh, trees are down, power is out. I mean, to have a million people in New Orleans without power, you know, the, the first day is okay. Second, third, fourth, fifth day, it gets a little tough. And that's what I'm concerned with is that this is going to be sort of a, a long-term thing. So I feel like we don't know the scope of the damage yet. I mean, there are rescues underway. Um, I'm hearing reports of, like, you can't get through to 911 in some of these areas. So if you decide to stay then, you know, you're kind of on your own and you, you have to make some decisions 
when it comes to these storms, what are you going to do? Are you going to evacuate when they tell you to do so, or are you going to stay? And I'm very concerned with this one because it was very powerful. And there wasn't a whole lot of lead-up time. I mean, we really did the best we could with the forecast. It was an area of low pressure that was homegrown, meaning that we weren't watching it for, for a week off the coast of Africa, like a lot of these storms come from. This was in the Caribbean, and we literally knew that it was going to become a hurricane on Friday, and then, you know, it came on Sunday. So there, there's not a whole lot of time, and I, I try my best every hurricane season to tell people that sometimes they don't have a lot of lead-up time. If you live along the Gulf Coast, if you live in Florida, if you live along the East Coast, you need to be prepared, and you need to have, like, a go-bag in case something like this happens and you only have a couple of days to get out of Dodge. You know, as soon as the trajectory of this storm started to become clearer and the headlines are starting to blare about a massive storm heading toward New Orleans, it's impossible, I think, for anyone over a certain age not to immediately bristle and think about Katrina because of that horrible, horrible storm that we saw in, was it, 2006, I believe, or thereabouts. There was, of course, a lot of fear about destruction in New Orleans, as you point out very, I think, well, and the point is well taken. We don't know the full impact of this yet, but early indications, Janice, was this less of a disastrous storm compared to Katrina, or is it too soon to tell? I mean, it seems like the engineering is a lot better these days in Louisiana and in New Orleans, thank God. This was going to be the big test after 16 years of the levee system uh, that, that broke after Katrina. And I remember Katrina well because I covered it. Uh, and it was literally, I think, the front page of the local newspaper in New Orleans said, dodged a bullet. And then literally the floodgates opened because of the, you know, the outdated levee system. And it wasn't because the storm surge overtopped the levees. It was because the water got in and or got out. Uh, And you have to know the geography of New Orleans. It is the most vulnerable city along the coastline. It is below sea level. It's between Lake Pontchartrain and the Mississippi River. And they built the city on the highest point of a river delta. And every year it continues to sink further south because they have a pumping system. Even on a good day when they've got like an inch of rain, their pumping system is pumping that water out back into Lake Pontchartrain. So it's always going to be really harrowing when you've got a hurricane, especially one that was almost a five at one point, and it's making a beeline for New Orleans. I just want to fact check myself. It was late 2005, Hurricane Katrina. And just looking at some of the reports on TV, it now looks like the number of people without power is at least 2 million as we speak. There is one confirmed casualty. And Louisiana officials are saying to prepare probably for more casualties, which is, of course, very sad. In the meantime, Janice, what do people need to know right now? And what can people do to help? 
Well, I mean, listen, there's always the Red Cross. Uh, I love Team Rubicon. They're one of my favorite organizations. Um, Jake Wood, uh, you know, uh, made it happen after the earthquake in Haiti. And he gr- gathered, uh, you know, a, a Marines that who, who had retired, uh, FDNY, uh, you know, firefighters, police officers that, you know, want to continue to do their service after their service. And these guys go into danger zones like hurricanes and, you know, rebuild and, and help others. So if you're going to donate to a cause, I, I highly recommend them. My worry now is, you know, we haven't seen the scope of it because we can't get in there. And, you know, rescue crews are trying to do that. And the other big worry is that even though this thing has been downgraded, it's going to move up north and east and affect areas that were affected by Henri, which was uh, southern New England, the Mid-Atlantic, and Tennessee. Last week, we just had an area of low pressure that brought 17 inches of rain across middle Tennessee. And this thing is going to go over those same areas. So that's what I'm concerned with as well going forward. Local governments, state governments are coordinating closely with Washington, D.C. Earlier today, President Biden said all of the assistance that's needed from the federal government will be available and they will continue to help the Gulf area, that region, for as long as is necessary. That's what the president said in an event earlier this afternoon. Janice Dean, senior meteorologist here at Fox News, joining us on the aftermath and still some of the ongoing ramifications and destruction caused by Hurricane Ida. And she's right. If you want to help, Red Cross is always a great option. And yes, is it Team Rubicon? It is Team Rubicon. Yeah, they, they do. I knew I knew Rubicon. I know they do really good work. Janice, we appreciate you joining us today and bringing us up to speed on the very latest. Thank you, Guy. I appreciate it. Janice Dean here on The Guy Benson Show. We will break. When we come back, we turn to the other lead story here, Afghanistan. A lot of news over the weekend and just today. We've been monitoring all the briefings. We've got some sound for you, some jaw-dropping updates. That's all ahead, just getting started. A brand new broadcast week here on The Guy Benson Show. A fresh take on the biggest stories of the day. It's Guy Benson. Hey, it's Clay Travis. Join me for Outkick the Show as we dive deep into a mix of topics. New episodes available Monday to Friday on your favorite podcast platform and watch directly on Outkick.com forward slash watch. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The One with Craig Gutfeld, the co-host of The Five, like you've never heard him before. You know him, you love him, you want to be like him. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. I'm Guy Benson. We are back here on The Guy Benson Show. Yesterday, we witnessed the dignified transfer of the caskets of the 13 fallen Americans at Dover Air Force Base. And that is always a very sobering thing to watch. And yesterday was absolutely no exception, particularly because there were a lot of people who believe strongly and not without reason that these deaths could have been avoided. And I will get into some of the specifics behind why coming up in the next segment. But I want to start here as we enter into the Afghanistan question with this. One of the questions that reporters have been trying to get an answer to today at the multiple briefings is how many Americans are left in Afghanistan who are trying to get out. And the consistent answer seems to be they don't know. The Biden administration doesn't know. 
The closest thing we've gotten to an answer is from the State Department where they think it might be in the 250 range. But again, the math has been a little bit of a black box the whole time. Where they're getting that number exactly, does that align with the reality on the ground? I'm not sure we have any good reason to actually trust them is part of the problem. And the amount of punting on that question has been striking. So Jen Psaki said she didn't know. She didn't have an exact number. John Kirby at the Pentagon was asked about this earlier. In Cut 23, this was his answer. Again, I'm referring to the State Department on uh, on the, the the numbers of Americans they're still in contact with. That's, that's uh, something for them to speak to. All right, so don't ask us in the Pentagon. Ask the State Department. The State Department said, we think it's about 250, but we're not fully sure of that the white house said yeah we're you know still working on the exact number i will remind you that the promise from the president was crystal clear and i've made this point a few different times and i think it deserves to be underscored every day as we discuss this topic when the united states of america and a president a commander-in-chief and the country broadly when they make a promise when he makes a promise to people It does not get any more serious than the promise to make sure that you're not going to be killed. And the president said, we are going to get every American out. We're going to get all of our allies out. And here we are about 24 hours away, right? 24 hours and five minutes away from the deadline. It's going to be 329 p.m., Tomorrow, Eastern Time, while we are on the air, that will be the deadline for all U.S. personnel to be out. And the State Department is basically admitting that they know of hundreds of Americans who still want to get out who haven't yet. We also know that it's basically now impossible to get into the airport at Kabul. They've shut it down. They are now turning inward. The military is getting their own people out. There's a BBC reporter saying, yeah, the civilian evacuations have ended. There might be, and this was inevitable. This this happened over the weekend. We told you this was going to happen. At some point, the military has to focus on getting themselves, those boots off the ground, in time for the Taliban deadline that Biden has completely bought into and has not flinched from. And so there will be Americans left in Afghanistan. That is basically accepted as a fact and even conceded by the Biden administration at this point. The exact number, we don't know. There will also be thousands, probably tens of thousands, of special immigrant visas, SIV holders, people who have helped us in that country for 20 years. The president also promised them. We've played the clips from June, and as recently as a week ago Friday— saying, yes, we are going to get those people out as well. That is not true. There's a story today in the New York Times about 600 students, the American University in Kabul, who got turned away. And the Taliban has their list of names now, and they're terrified. Kirby at the Pentagon was asked about this earlier in Cut 24. Here's that exchange. Reporting is saying that there are about 7,000 of the 88,000. So that leaves more than 80,000 SIVs and their family members left behind. Does the Pentagon see that as a success, leaving 80,000 people, SIVs, who worked alongside our troops behind? Carla, I can't verify that number, that the math you just gave me. And I can't tell you what the breakdown is right now between 
um, the, the the more than a hundred and what twelve thousand, maybe more, Afghans that we were able to evacuate in the course of less than a couple of weeks. I can't give you the breakdown right now. I just I honestly can't. That's a dodge. Because let's say he disputes the number. Let's say she's off by half. That would still be 40,000 people left behind. And we brought you stats last week that came from the administration that suggested in an estimate that the vast majority, more than 80% of the Afghans who were taken out in this airlift that they keep celebrating as a success were not SIVs and were not Americans. Right Of the group, 112, whatever the number is, 1,000 people, only a fraction, a little over 10%, I think roughly 12%, maybe a little bit more, were Americans or SIVs. And as I mentioned last week, and I will reiterate today, in a process that was even remotely thought through and orderly and reasonable and functional and competent, those groups would have been put at the very top of the list, the very front of the line, and instead you're going to have... Hundreds, maybe more of Americans left behind after tomorrow and tens of thousands of Afghans. And that is a betrayal. I don't know what else to call it. A lie and a betrayal of the highest order. And surely by last Friday, not this past Friday, but the previous Friday when the president again doubled down on the promise, surely by that point he had to know because everyone seemed to understand there was no way That promise was going to be kept, and yet he said it again. And now you've got a lot of these people, people who put their families on the line, themselves on the line, who are going to watch the last few Americans take off in airplanes 24 hours from right now, wondering what will happen to them next and fearing for good reason if their death is imminent. There's a lot that I want to get to on this. President Biden was asked a question about this yesterday. He refused to take it. He refused to talk about Afghanistan. We'll play you that sound. And walk you through some of the revelations that we've learned just over the weekend that make this mess look even worse than it is. Or even worse than we previously had known, is what I should say. And puts the lie to this insulting claim that this is a successful operation and that the United States could not possibly have done any better. You're always going to break a few eggs. Oh, well, we've done our best. This is absolutely not our best. Oh, we've planned for every contingency. No, that is absolutely not true. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. And we'll give you even more reasons why as soon as we come back. It's the Guy Benson Show. Much still to get to. Steve Hayes also ahead on this issue of Afghanistan on the Guy Benson Show. 
Living the Bream is a podcast hosted by Fox News Channel's Shannon Bream, sharing inspirational stories, personal anecdotes, and an insider's perspective on actions and rulings from the high court. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. I'm not, I'm not supposed to take any questions, but go ahead. Afghanistan? I'm not going to answer Afghanistan now. Can you see if they're still in a... Okay. Back on the Guy Benson Show. That was yesterday at FEMA headquarters in Washington, D.C. President Biden come back from Dover Air Force Base, where he and the First Lady and others received the caskets of the fallen Americans. I know some people noted that during that transfer, Biden was captured looking at his watch at one point. There was some criticism of that. He then went to FEMA. And he loves doing this. I'm not supposed to take questions like, you know, his handlers have told him we're not doing this. We don't have a list, the pre-approved list of people that we're going to call on. But he's going to take questions anyway. And, of course, he was talking at FEMA. He was there in advance of the landfall, Hurricane Ida. We talked about that earlier this hour with Janice Dean. But he is also presiding over a massive geopolitical and national security crisis. And the first question that someone tried to ask him was about Afghanistan. And he says, I'm not going to answer on Afghanistan. And he sort of slams his fist on the podium and walks away. That was the Q&A yesterday. And part of the reason why he might not want to take questions about Afghanistan is because he does not have good answers to any of the pertinent questions. I want to give you a few examples of this fiasco that he has created through his decisions his policy, and his idiotic planning or lack thereof. How many times have they told us, oh yes, we we planned for every contingency. And we've talked about how there have been a huge amount of like a cache of weapons and equipment that are now in the hands of the Taliban because we withdrew so quickly. And because we pulled and yanked the rug out from under the Afghan forces with no backup, And the Taliban just, you know, ran over them and took all of this equipment. And I had estimated just hearing some reports that this could be in the hundreds of millions of dollars. Well, it looks like the actual number is $85 billion. The Taliban now is armed and equipped with $85 billion worth of our military equipment. Jen Psaki today was asked, are we safer Is the United States safer now that the Taliban has all of that equipment from us because of the way that we pulled out and she was doing everything she could to avoid answering that question? Because obviously we know the answer. The answer is no, it's not safer. It's insane that we got out this quickly that a terrorist organization now has all of this equipment. So the New York Times actually had an infographic that I posted about today at townhall.com. Here's just... A few examples of what the Taliban now has. Our enemy over 20 years. 22,174 Humvees. 169 armored personnel characters. 42,000 pickup trucks and military SUVs. A whole fleet of helicopters. More than 100 helicopters. Dozens of of airplanes, 16,035 night vision goggles and devices, 8,000 trucks, 
162,000 radios. And then listen to this. 126,295 pistols. 358,530 assault rifles. And 64,363 machine guns. Now, just let's pause this for a second. This administration is committed to gun control in the United States. They want to limit and curtail the right of law-abiding Americans to own firearms. They believe that is in the interests of the United States. They talk about weapons of war. They have just effectively gifted a terrorist organization half a million firearms, including a bunch of them that would be and are illegal here in the United States because they are automatic weapons. The Taliban now has, I'll repeat, half a million American guns because of this. Plus the fleet of helicopters and planes and trucks and Humvees. It is. It sort of takes your breath away just to look at this graphic that I, again, have posted at townhall.com today. $85 billion worth. They say that they plan for every contingency. We couldn't have done any better than this. Does a single person really believe that? A single one? I know the chief of staff of the White House, Ron Klain, is just retweeting a bunch of lefty hacks 24-7. Seems like he's doing nothing but tweet. I know that used to be a criticism of a a certain someone. Ron Klain's just retweeting Joy Reid and Jen Rubin like it's going out of style. He cannot get enough. I don't think even they believe truly that this is the best the United States could have done because on its face, obviously, it is not. Then there's this story, and this story really bothers me, and it dovetails from the kill list Politico story that we talked about last week that they are still really parsing. There has not been a flat-out denial from the administration of the government on this. They're saying, oh, well, it wasn't a blanket kill list. We didn't give the whole list of people. It was, you know, smaller groups on specific, you know, buses or specific efforts to get people out, but they are not denying that the United States gave lists of people including, it seems like, hundreds of students to the Taliban because the Taliban was running security in Kabul on our behalf, which is just, again, a mind-bending reality. Even more so in a detail that I'll get here in a second, what we learned over the weekend from the Washington Post. But in addition to these ad hoc, let's call them kill lists, the New York Post has this story. And again, this puts a chill up my spine. Quote, the Taliban has mobilized a special unit called Al-Isha to hunt down Afghans who helped U.S. and allied forces, and it's using U.S. equipment and data to do it. One of the brigade commanders over this unit bragged in a recent interview that his unit is, quote, using U.S.-made handheld scanners to tap into a massive U.S.-built biometric database to positively identify any person who helped the NATO allies or worked with our intelligence. Afghans who try to deny or minimize their role could find themselves contradicted by the detailed computer records that the U.S. left behind in its frenzied withdrawal. 
The existence of this unit has not been previously confirmed by the Taliban. Until now, the Haqqani Network, a terror group aligned with the Taliban and al-Qaeda, has not admitted its role to targeting Afghans or using America's vast biometric database, but now we know that they are, and they're bragging about it. We cataloged Afghans who were helping us and our allies. We put a database together using biometric information, presumably for vetting, to keep our people safe over there, and also if we needed to evacuate them to make sure that these were the people who deserved our help. Right? We did that over the course of years. We told these Afghans who were trusting us and we were trusting them, here, give us your information. It's for our own good and your own good. And now what has happened? Because of this insane withdrawal plan, Tens of thousands of these exact people are being left behind because they were not evacuated or prioritized because of the unbelievably terrible planning of this administration. Now they are left inside the country that will now be run in 24 hours, less than 24 hours by the Taliban. And we have left behind our database and this biometric equipment that will be and is being used To hunt these people down and they might try to get away with saying, no, no, that's not me. I'm not him. And they're like, oh, really? Let's scan your iris or whatever. And there's the list and you're on it. Bullet in the head. We have given them this technology. This technology was created to protect them. We made a promise to them. We have now broken the promise. And on top of that, the enemy now has everything they need to prove That these are the people that they're searching for. It is like a double whammy of betrayal. It is a punch and then a a cross. It is, it is, I can't even really articulate the anger that I feel about this and how it, how it turns my stomach. We already knew that the Taliban was hunting people down. This is why, you know, the State Department puts out a statement yesterday because now they're backtracking on the promise that President Biden made foolishly and wrongly. He said, yes, we're going to get all these people out. And now they're saying, well, no, we're not. We can't confirm the exact number of how many will be left behind. It's in the tens of thousands. But there will be ongoing efforts. And we have assurances from the Taliban that they will let these people leave. They have already broken their promises on access to the airport, and they have already been executing people. And they are bragging about the U.S. database that they're going to continue to use as they execute more people. And the State Department has the gall to put out a little piece of paper saying, oh, we have assurances. How assured would you feel if you were one of these people on the ground right now? It's a disgrace. It's an absolute disgrace. Meanwhile, we learned over the weekend of the Washington Post, and again, this could be part of the reason why Biden didn't want to take any questions. Right? They said, oh, yeah, I'm not supposed to take questions. I'll tell you, yes, you, Mr. President on Afghanistan. Oh, I'm not about that. Goodbye. Maybe he didn't want to be asked about the half a million high-powered weapons we just gave to the Taliban. Right? By dint of our actions. It wasn't a direct transfer, but it was the direct consequence of our policy and the terrible execution of that policy from the Biden administration. Maybe he didn't want to answer questions about the biometric database that will be used in all likelihood 
in the executions of people who helped us there for years and to whom he himself made a blood oath that has been broken. I'm sure he'd prefer not to answer questions about that. And maybe he doesn't want to answer questions about this either. The Washington Post reporting that the United States willfully ceded control of Kabul to the Taliban on the weekend of August 15th, so about two weeks ago. Let me read to you from this story. And you have some people saying, yes, this is exactly the right decision. Okay, let's let's talk about that. Quoting now, in a hastily arranged in-person meeting, senior U.S. military leaders in Doha, Qatar, including General McKenzie, the commander of U.S. Central Command, spoke with Abdul Ghani Baradar, the head of the Taliban's political wing. So this is a negotiation with the Taliban. They've met in person. This was two weeks ago. We have a problem, the Taliban leader said, according to people who were there. We have two options to deal with. You, the United States military, take responsibility for securing Kabul, or you will have to allow us to do it. Throughout the day, Biden had remained resolute in his decision to withdraw all American troops from Afghanistan. McKenzie was aware of the orders to stick with the timeline, and he told the Taliban that the U.S. mission was only to evacuate American citizens, Afghan allies, and others at risk. The United States, he said, needed just the airport, Kabul airport, to do that. On the spot, an understanding was reached. According to two other U.S. officials, the United States would have the airport until August 31st, but the Taliban would control the city. What this means is that the Taliban offered the, they kept closing in, closing in, closing in on Kabul. They were taking over the whole country. People were getting very alarmed. The collapse that Biden himself had assured us wasn't going to happen was happening. The Taliban actually came to us and said, hey, do you want to control Kabul for the next few weeks? You guys control the security situation. If not, it's going to be us. And the U.S. said, you take it. The Taliban It was not inevitable that the Taliban was going to overrun Kabul with us still there. We could have controlled that city. Yes, that would have involved more troops. And Biden obviously did not want to send in more troops to control the capital city because he didn't want more American boots on the ground because he was trying to get us out. But think about if he had just made that temporary decision to surge some troops in for the final two weeks. Think of the number of Americans and Afghan allies who are now stranded and about to be abandoned. In Afghanistan, think about how many of them we could have gotten out if we had controlled the entire city of Kabul, as opposed to a terrorist organization. We made a a choice. The president and the administration made a choice to decline that offer and hand security in the city, including right outside the airport, which caused so many problems, to the Taliban. I'm also reminded, remember the Bloomberg story that we read on the air a number of days ago, why the Brits and the G7 were so mad and so furious and Biden was saying, oh, no, it's never been stronger. Our alliances. Well, I haven't heard anything about U.S. credibility. No, no. And of course, that was a lie. There were quotes in the newspaper from top EU officials. They were railing against Biden in the House of Commons in London. He was like, oh, see no evil, hear no evil. Part of the reason that they were so mad is that Biden 
based on leaked British memos back in June, I believe it was, assured the Brits and our European allies that the U.S. would maintain a security presence in Kabul in order to help people get out. Then we broke that promise, and it turns out we knowingly broke the promise by giving it over to the Taliban by choice. John McCormick at National Review writes this, the result of that decision by President Biden is that Khalil Haqqani, an al-Qaeda-linked terrorist with a $5 million U.S. bounty on his head, was placed in charge of security in Kabul. That was a choice that Biden made. And they want to tell us every contingency was planned for and it couldn't have possibly gone any other way. Nonsense. We know that's not true. And the more they say it, the more insulting it gets, especially with tens of thousands of people being hung out to dry in about 23 and a half hours. More on this when we come back. It's the Guy Benson Show. Energetic, informed, fast-paced. Guy Benson Show. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. As we continue here on The Guy Benson Show, Steve Hayes will join me in the next hour to analyze the situation on the ground in Afghanistan and cut through some of the, really the blizzard of deflections and untruths and outright lies being told by the Biden administration. The Pentagon is going to hold another briefing here coming up. We'll keep an eye on that. Secretary of State Tony Blinken is going to speak in the five o'clock hour. We've got Kirk Herbstreet here in the five o'clock hour, but we will be monitoring Blinken. You can predict what he's going to say. It's same, same old stuff. If there's anything big out of that, we'll get it to you. We'll analyze it. We can maybe play some of the sound tomorrow. But Blinken, speaking of Blinken, the Washington Post also revealed this weekend that hours before Kabul fell and this catastrophe really started to escalate in a way that Blinken said wouldn't happen, he was on vacation in the Hamptons. He was like, oh, oh, gosh. Our entire Afghanistan policy is falling apart. I might have to come back from the Hamptons. I feel like there's a metaphor there. Stephen Hayes on the other side of this break in a brand new hour on The Guy Benson Show coming up. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The Untold Story with Martha McCallum. The host of The Story on Fox News Channel sits down with major newsmakers each week to get their untold story. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Kai Benson Show. A new hour here on the Guy Benson Show, a new week. Thanks for tuning in. Coming to you live from New York City. GuyBensonShow.com is our website, the podcast, free every day, and it is trending up. We appreciate it. Thank you. GuyBensonShow.com. Fox News Alert. Dow closes down 55 points today, finishing the day at 35,399. With us now, 
is our next guest. Steve Hayes is a Fox News contributor, editor, and CEO of The Dispatch. You can follow him on Twitter, at Stephen F. Hayes. Steve, good to have you back. Hey, guys. How are you? Well, I mean, you know, fine. Um, it's really difficult to watch everything that's happening in Afghanistan and the spin that the administration is trying to put on any of it. It doesn't seem to be going very well for them, the spin or the execution. And it just seems astounding to me that we have the White House sort of with a straight face in the State Department but put out a whole press release about this, a statement that the big promise that they made to get every American and U.S. ally out of Afghanistan They were never going to be able to keep that promise. They didn't do any of the legwork and planning that would have been required to come close to meeting that promise. And now that the promise is about to meet a brutal end date and and become inoperative tomorrow, they're now shifting to say, well, we have assurances from the Taliban and the Haqqani network, and we have leverage on them. And so they're going to let people continue to leave if they want to leave knowing that they've already actively denied a lot of people the chance to even get to the airport, and they've murdered a bunch of people already for being collaborators, and and yet they tell the world, oh, we've got this leverage and we have this statement, we've received assurances, and it almost feels like a cartoon of feckless, impotent American weakness. Yeah, you know, if it weren't so tragic, um, you know, you go go back and look at the things that they were saying at the beginning of this unfolding catastrophe, and there was an obvious uh, reluctance for them to make the kind of promise that they, I think, eventually were kind of goaded into making, where they were, you know, they were asked, can you give assurances? Can you guarantee that every single American? And they peppered their responses with qualifiers. Well, every American who wants to, to come home, right. that's, a, that's one lately. Um, but it's, it's become abundantly clear in recent days that they're not serious about honoring those pledges. Uh, you know, the, the, it was an interesting tweet from Zal Khalizad, who's been U.S. envoy, uh, to Afghanistan for these so- so-called peace talks, both under President Trump and now under President Biden, on August 28th, and he, in effect, translated the Taliban's assurances that the uh, Americans and others would be able to leave freely after the U.S. withdraws. And Khalizad tweeted that out on August 28th, and I heard from someone who's been involved in working with these rescue operations saying. He's doing that to get ahead of the story here. And what's, what's going to happen is we know that there will be Americans who are left behind. They will be left behind not because they're choosing to leave, but because they can't get safe passage to the airport. And the U.S. government is doing nothing to help them get out. I'm, again, it just time after time, I just feel speechless when we have guests on the program make statements like that and – You just can't believe that they're true, and yet they are. I mean, Steve, I'm sure you saw over the weekend the Washington Post story, and we talked about it a bit last hour, where apparently the Taliban reportedly came to us, came to the U.S. government and said, look, for these last few weeks of the evacuation and the drawdown, the withdrawal, you guys can have control of the capital city of Kabul. Uh, If you're not going to do it, then we're going to do it. Those are the two options. And the president... And his team decided that the best option was to say, you take it, to hand the ball off 
for Kabul security to the Taliban yeah. and the Haqqani network. That's a thing that the Washington Post has reported. And I was wondering, are they going to deny this? Is the White House going to deny this? Instead, I've seen Ron Klain, the White House chief of staff, retweeting people who were saying, yes, that was the right decision to make, which seems to me to yeah. be a confirmation of the story. Yeah, I mean, and as you point out, Guy, we've seen this again and again and again. You expect that they're going to deny something or some piece of reporting that comes out. You expect that they're going to deny it because it's so crazy to think that the U.S. government would be in the position of taking assurances from the Taliban at face value. And yet again and again and again, that's exactly what they've done. I think there are really two problems here. The first problem is Joe Biden decided he was going to get out and nothing was going to slow him down. Nothing, period. He didn't care about all of these things that were raised by some of his advisors, by some members of the military, certainly in intelligence reports. He didn't care. He wanted to get out. He was going to get out as fast as he could. And that was it. That's problem number one. The second problem, I think, in some ways is, uh, you know, a bigger problem or a longer term problem. It predates Joe Biden and it will outlast him by a long shot. And that is You've had successive administrations and people at the highest levels of U.S. government insist on whitewashing the Taliban, pretending the Taliban isn't what the Taliban is. The Taliban is a jihadist fighting force. They are terrorists. We don't have to cut it up. We don't have to be more nuanced than that. As you point out, they are in league with the Haqqani network and have been for decades. They are the ones who prepared the ground for the 9-11 attacks, for al-Qaeda, clearing a path for al-Qaeda to operate in Afghanistan, understanding that there would be a war that followed the 9-11 attacks, working with the Taliban to fight the United States. Since then, they have attacked Americans, killed Americans, attacked our interests, attacked our allies. That is what the Taliban does. And this inclination that you've you've seen, and I would say the previous administration did it too, made assurances that the Taliban were going to fight alongside Americans to kill al-Qaeda. It was fantasy. And that is infecting, I think, the way that the Biden administration is is pursuing this. When, When we hear them say, yeah, we're trusting the Taliban. We're working with the Taliban. So the Taliban is handling security. It just doesn't sound the same way to them that it does to us, yeah. unfortunately. I mean, it, again, it sounds crazy to us. And frankly, I've seen what the president has said about, for example, the governor of Florida. I've seen the way he interacted with our colleague, Peter Ducey. I see now the White House apparently whispering to reporters, warning the U.K. government that the special relationship is in jeopardy because Joe Biden's going to hold a grudge because the U.K. government has been so critical of him. And maybe some of them have, you know, reportedly said, you know, personally nasty things about him. I mean, he seems angrier and and shows more fire about Ron DeSantis and Fox News and Boris Johnson than he has about the Taliban, which is a terrorist organization. I mean, it's it's sort of it makes your head spin, Steve. It really does. He's the yeah, healer, I mean, right? This was, this was Mr. Healer, Mr. Common, and, you know, united, divided country. We're going to restore America's place in the world, and this is what we're seeing now. Yeah, I mean, think about his inauguration speech. You know, he, you know, he talked about feeling unity in his soul, and that's what he was going to do. That's how he ran. I mean, it is how he ran. And he's certainly falling well short of of those promises in, in many of the particulars. But this is, you know, the security situation over there, what we are likely to see, I think they, they were so myopically focused on just 
getting out. They, they either failed to take seriously the, the coming security crisis, and it will be a security crisis, or they just set aside the warnings from folks in the intelligence community. And the intelligence community is you know, divided on this, but there were certainly warnings about what a, a Taliban-controlled Afghanistan would look like and the threats that it would present to Americans. And that's, that's what we're going to be living, unfortunately. A few things here, Steve, on the execution of this. You mentioned that part of the problem is that Joe Biden circled a date on the calendar and said, largely for symbolism and 9-11 and, and, you know, the 20 years and all of that, we were going to get out come hell or high water no matter what on this expedited timeline. I know that sounds weird after 20 years to call it expedited, but if once the decision has been made to withdraw, then you have multiple ways to, to go about that withdrawal. And it just seems to me that if you were fully supportive, I know you're not, but if you were fully supportive of the decision, the fundamental decision, we are getting out of Afghanistan, every last American is going to pull out by X date, you then have to really start, you know, looking at that timeline and putting the, the pieces in place and the logistics in place over the course of many months to make that process go as smoothly as possible. And I'm willing to concede it was not going to be perfect. It's never going to be perfect, especially in a place like Afghanistan. It may not have even been very good, but to at least have it be a somewhat seamless, credible, non-disastrous withdrawal, you can really do a lot of logistical and contingency planning for real over the course of many months and then execute on the plan. And it just feels like Almost none of that happened. And now Biden basically gave the military a bunch of orders saying, under no circumstances are we delaying this again. You are going to get out by this time. And anything that looks like you might be escalating or putting more people in there, I'm going to say no to. And then when you've hemmed them in, and as I talked about with Chris Wallace last week, you put them in a corner saying this is what you have to do. And then the military says, "Okay, Mr. President, in that case, here are our recommendations. When it turns out that his policies and his plans were terrible and made no sense and were, you know, inevitably going to fail, whenever the White House or the president is challenged on those things, he then just like sloughs it off over to the general saying, oh, well, I was just taking the advice of the of the military leaders, which seems like a complete buck passing abdication to me. Yeah, well, it's not it's not the only contradiction we've seen from Joe Biden, right? I mean, he, he said now on several different occasions when he's spoken about Afghanistan, the the buck stops with me. But then you listen moments later, and he's passing the buck to Donald Trump. He's passing the buck to his his own generals. He's passing the buck to Afghanistan, to the to the Afghan National Security Forces. He's passing the buck to Ashraf Ghani, the the Afghan uh, head of the Afghan government. He doesn't. He's, he's passing the buck to the Taliban. He's passing our yeah. security to the Taliban. It's it's a rhetorical gimmick that he uses, and he doesn't mean it because. Everything else he says points points in the other direction. You know, they've contradicted themselves all over the place because you look back at in just as late as mid-July, and he was saying this will be an orderly transition. Yep. You know, we don't anticipate huge problems. And you fast forward a month, a little more than a month, and he's saying this was inevitable. And, oh, by the way, the chaos that we're seeing is a validation of my policy decision mm-hmm. because this was always going to happen. I mean, it's there's like there's such a level of incoherence 
Usually at this point in a crisis, the administration has been able to settle on a a line, on a story, on something and push hard and get its partisan sort of to, to back it up. We're not even seeing that because it's just all so incoherent right. and I think indefensible. Yeah, and the, and and the so worst part of it and the worst types. The worst example, there. Steve, is them saying, oh, yes, yeah, it's going to be orderly. We've got this. Uh, you know, it's going to be fine. We're going to get people out who need to get out. We're going to have a robust diplomatic presence still there. The embassy is going to remain there. The Taliban's not going to take over. Then the opposite happens and they cling to this fake promise that they made that thousands of people were counting on and then at the last second they say oh never mind but we still have leverage and assurances so you know good luck after tuesday i mean it is it is a shocking betrayal i see that the state department is saying that there might be about 250 americans left that they know of steve about 30 seconds do you believe them i just don't know if there's any credibility to these numbers I don't believe them. I think there are more. And they'll caveat it again with Americans who want to remain. No, I mean, you know, I think a lot of people, a lot of journalists have been hearing sometimes uh, firsthand either from people who are over there and can't get out or about people who are over there and can't get out. And in some cases are choosing not to report it so as to not jeopardize their security or their their safe passage. I think we're going to learn that there's a lot more that was happening out of public eye and a lot more uh, tragedy to come, unfortunately. Well, Tomorrow's the deadline, 3.29 p.m. Eastern Time, and then all bets are off for those who are being left behind. They said, don't you use the word stranded. We are going to strand a lot of people. That's the reality. Steve Hayes, our guest here on The Guy Benson Show. Steve, thank you. We'll take a break and be right back. Get this and all your favorite Fox News podcasts ad-free on Apple Podcasts with Fox News Podcasts Plus. Just go to foxnewspodcasts.com for all the details. I'm Guy Benson. We are back. And last week it was really tough to hear the death toll of American soldiers increase as the hours passed after that suicide attack at Kabul airport. At first it was four. I think it was even three. Then four. Then ten. And it eventually swelled to 13. And the military has been releasing the names of the fallen. And we want to recognize them and say each of their names. Staff Sergeant Darren Hoover, 31 years old, a Marine from Utah. Sergeant Johnny Rosario Pichardo, 25, a Marine from Massachusetts. Sergeant Nicole Gee, 23, a Marine from California. Corporal Hunter Lopez, 22, a Marine from California. Corporal Dagan Page, 23, a Marine from Nebraska. Corporal Umberto Sanchez, 22, a Marine from Indiana. Lance Corporal David Espinoza, 20, a Marine from Texas. Lance Corporal Jared Schmitz, 20, a Marine from Missouri. Lance Corporal Riley McCollum, a Marine from Wyoming. Lance Corporal Dylan Marola, 20, a Marine from California. Lance Corporal Kareem 
Nikoi, 20, also a Marine from California. We lost four Marines from California. Navy Hospital Corpsman Max Soviak, 22, from Ohio. And Staff Sergeant Ryan Naus, 23, U.S. Army, from Tennessee. Each of those families is grieving individually. The nation mourns for all of them. Going down the list, it's impossible not to notice how young they all were. It was a Marine at 31 who was the oldest of the group. Most were in their early 20s, some just 20. Some were barely born when 9-11 happened. Some were barely born when the mission in Afghanistan began. And we pray that these are the final American casualties in Afghanistan. But there's a lot of danger ahead for a lot of people. The politics of that, the decisions behind that, the incompetence and the failures, we've talked a lot about that. We will continue to talk about it. We will cover everything as it unfolds. But in this segment, we just wanted to acknowledge these 13 brave soldiers who put it all on the line and lost their lives. Rest in peace. Thank you for your service. God rest your souls. And may he comfort the families. The Guy Benson Show continues after this. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Dominich, publisher of The Federalist, and I'm inviting you to join a new conversation with the smartest thinkers out there about the country and where we're going. Subscribe to the Ben Dominich Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. You're listening to a new... You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. It's the Guy Benson Show from New York City on this Monday. Thank you for tuning in. Well, we've talked about this a few different times, and I keep coming back to it because the rhetoric continues to be completely divorced from the reality and from the evidence. And I'm not talking about Afghanistan. I'm talking about masking in schools, required masks for students in schools. And I'll give the same caveat that I always do. I would rather have kids in school wearing masks than not in school, which is what we saw many places last year, especially in blue areas run by Democrats and teachers unions. And they were dead wrong on schools last year, harmfully wrong, setting millions of children back needlessly. But now when it comes to masks in schools, they have absolute certainty and self-righteousness that they are correct. Even though they got it so wrong last year. In fact, I saw this quote from the teachers union in Los Angeles, the president, Cecily Mayart Cruz. Her quote was, learning loss is a myth, which is, of course, a total lie, completely disproven by the data. We have... Experts and scientists and teachers who have 
made the case extremely powerfully that learning loss and falling behind is absolutely a real phenomenon. And when you're not in school for a year and you're attending virtually or not attending virtually in a lot of cases, we saw a huge spike in failing grades, truancy, etc. It is a fact that learning loss was real. It was one of the biggest harms of last year. And here's the teachers union president in Los Angeles calling it a myth. Because they have to justify what they did to kids last year. Quote, it's okay that our babies may not have learned all their times tables, she said. They know the difference between a riot and a protest. And they know the words insurrection and coup. What an incredible quote. I tell you, when some of these teachers unions representatives speak out loud, they are basically shouting a case for school choice. I would be horrified if my kids were trapped in one of the schools dominated by the union that this woman runs. And unfortunately, the people who are most likely to be trapped in these types of schools run by these types of people are disadvantaged families who don't have the wherewithal or the means to get their kids into a school of their choosing. And that's exactly how the unions like it. And in California, they are smug and they are convinced things will never change because they have a death grip on that place, which may be true. I know there's this recall election coming up. Governor, even if Newsom gets recalled, you know, the governor can only do so much. Even if, you know, Larry Elder becomes governor of California, systemically the unions run the show, which is why that state has become what it's become. And I think it just goes to the arrogance that this woman would come out and say it. Learning loss is a myth. Having kids not in school for a year, it's a myth. And by the way, I'd love to rebut that. With a statement from the UK government, we keep quoting them because they actually look at their data very closely. They've made better decisions, I think, across the board in a lot of ways than we have on schools, on masking. We talked about that last week. I'll get back to that in just a second here. But I think this is illustrative of the problem. The president of a huge teachers union saying learning loss is a myth and saying that it's okay. It's acceptable that our babies, I love how she uses that word, that our babies, no, stop. You have a job to do, which is educating children. It's okay that our babies may not have learned their times tables. She's talking about multiplication tables, I assume, like, you know, sort of an old school way of saying that. But they know the difference between a riot and a protest, and they know the words insurrection and coup. So they're getting the kids to be woke. And the kids know about social unrest, and they know all about January 6th. And I'm not saying that no students should know about those things or that they shouldn't be talked about in schools in certain ways, you know, delicately with some nuance. But what this teachers union president said in this amazing soundbite is that it doesn't matter if they're not learning basic math because that stuff doesn't really matter as much. And learning loss is a myth anyway. What they have been educated on, not in the classroom, is a bunch of social justice stuff. And political controversies. She said it out loud. It's pretty extraordinary. Meanwhile, since I referenced the UK, we talked last week about the new guidance over there. In-person classroom learning. They've had that for many months on end. They had some masking on adults and some of the older students. Some of them just in hallways and communal areas. Virtually no masking at all on younger kids, grade school kids, elementary school kids, whereas our CDC says, oh, if they're three or older, they have to wear a mask. 
UK says, no, they don't. They haven't. They've done fine during Delta. Even with some outbreaks, they weren't that serious. And the change post-Delta or mid-Delta, depending on how you look at their curve, the change that the United Kingdom has made in their schools, in England in particular, as they've shifted their mask guidance, is to require even less masking because there's no evidence for it. We quoted the New York Times last week. I'm glad that they covered this. I credit them for actually covering it because they're pushing back with real-world evidence and data and examples as opposed to this sort of widespread hysterical superstition. The British experts concluded that the potential harms of having kids in masks exceed the potential benefits. And I'm glad that they're framing it that way as potential because there is some evidence that masking kids and putting them in masks for eight hours a day can do some harm to their development and other things. There is some evidence, albeit scant and contradicted by other evidence, that in some cases wearing masks in schools can help stop some spread of the virus. But it's all potential. And they weighed these two options or these two phenomena. They said, okay, the potential harms outweigh the potential benefits. And that experiment that they've done on a huge scale in the UK has been so successful that they're now scaling back the little remaining required massing that they had. Quote, throughout the pandemic, government studies showed that infection rates in schools did not exceed those in the community at large. Most infections were likely acquired outside of school buildings. This is the New York Times story. They said over in the UK, quote, there was less partisan divide. Both the conservative and labor parties have generally believed that face coverings hinder young children's ability to communicate, socialize, and learn. The data showed that schools were not hubs of infection. And the consensus among British experts, based on their data, was that policies that keep children out of school are, quote, extremely harmful in the long term. Extremely harmful. Juxtapose that with what that teachers union president in Los Angeles said. Where she was justifying what they did to their students, locking them out of learning, locking them out of classrooms last year for no good scientific reason. By the way, the kids didn't have vaccines last year. They don't have them this school year. They're going to be in school this year. That is an admission. That is a tacit admission that the schools that were closed last year made the wrong call. And we've gone through all of the reasons why. We've read from that USA Today op-ed from top epidemiologists saying, please have kids in the schools. This is crazy. It's harmful not to do it. The fact that almost every single school that was closed last year, often at the behest of teachers unions, is reopening this year, even with a very contagious variant, now all over the country, and still no vaccines for kids, that is an admission that last year they got it wrong. And yet they won't admit it. And they want you to believe that anyone who adopts the European or British approach on masking for kids in schools is a monster who's going to kill a bunch of children. That's the talking point here. That's the way that this issue is framed in America. And the media has a lot to do with it, and it's completely insane. And again, I think this juxtaposition is so powerful The British government finding that having kids out of the classroom is extremely harmful, which is why they have them in the classrooms not wearing masks. And you have the teachers union 
president of one of the biggest school districts in the country saying that learning loss is a myth and it doesn't matter that the babies didn't learn math because they learned about wokeness and they learned about social protests and they learned about the coup or whatever. Who's actually looking out for children here in this equation? That's a question that I think we need to ask repeatedly and hold their feet to the fire. And so we've had yet more raging about Ron DeSantis down in Florida, anti-science, killing children, hates children, because he had a mask opt-out policy that has been at least temporarily struck down by a judge in, I think, a very sloppy, poorly reasoned ruling. And a bunch of people cannot stop raging against him. And what's interesting, a few people have pointed this out, the Florida policy is not substantively very different than the Tennessee policy. Have you heard anything about the Tennessee policy and the opt-out for parents? Have you heard people going on MSNBC and CNN and Twitter and huffing and puffing about Tennessee killing all their children? You haven't? It is awfully similar to Florida. And DeSantis's press secretary has been making this point as well. The substance is very similar, and yet all of the anger is at Florida, and it's almost as if it's because there's politics at play. They're not worried about Tennessee or the governor of Tennessee. They're worried about Florida and the governor of Florida, a swing state and someone who might want to be president. They've had it out for him for months. Florida's having a very difficult time, although, thank God, their curve seems to be coming down now. Knock on wood. Let's pray that continues. They are trying to exploit this moment to damage Ron DeSantis. And it doesn't matter how deranged their rhetoric gets. Even though they were wrong over and over and over and over again last year about DeSantis and opening schools and distributing vaccines to elderly people first and going through the largest, most popular chain in the entire state to do so, everything he did, they attacked. And now they're attacking him again on this, even though he's basically even a few steps In the restrictive direction compared to the EU, much of the EU and the UK, we never hear about that. We never hear about the Tennessee example. It's just Ron Death Santis. And I cannot reach any conclusion other than this is almost 100% about politics. Howard Dean, former governor of Vermont, former DNC chairman, the guy who, you know, shrieked. At that famous moment, he said, I'm just shocked by DeSantis. I never thought I'd say this, but he might be even more of a lunatic than Trump ever was. It's always they move to the next Republican being crazier and worse than the last one. And this is their problem. Donald Trump, he was a unique threat to our republic. You completely blow up your case when you say, and Ron DeSantis is probably worse, right? Like, it's crazy. In that same interview... Howard Dean said that because of Ron DeSantis, there are, quote, dead kids all over Florida. Talking about the mask mandate in schools. For the last 19 months, over the course of this pandemic, there have been 12 children in the state of Florida who have died with COVID. 12. More kids die annually in Florida from accidental drowning. And it's not really close. Than have died with COVID in the entire pandemic. And yet Howard Dean's out there channeling this genre of unhinged commentary saying that DeSantis is the biggest lunatic ever, so much worse than Trump. Look at all these dead kids all over Florida. 
Nothing about that is actually true. But they say it anyway. As I say, this is all about politics. Over the weekend, last thought on this, I did a quick thread because I saw the pile on was really intensifying. They are trying to get him while he's down, while his state is having trouble. Ignoring the fact that they're still roughly average on the death rate in that state, despite having an elderly population, despite the fact that they have the highest vaccination rate of any red state in the country, they ignore that stuff. They're mad that he's pushing successful therapeutics, right? The monoclonal antibodies. That was another scandal that wasn't. We talked about that here. So I said this on Twitter. Ron DeSantis has grown on me as he's governed. He's gotten a lot of the big important stuff right, like open schools, which is one of the reasons why many of his critics are so over the top and unremitting. I don't always agree with him. And I cited his policy not allowing private cruise lines to require vaccinations. I thought that should be up to the private industry. That's an example where I've disagreed with him. I said, I also think he'd be well served to promote the vaccines, which he has done quite well, as often as he's touting the antibody treatments, which is, by the way, also a good policy. And I said, maybe emphasizing the opt out as opposed to the ban on a mandate when it comes to kids and masks in schools, the opt out might be framed a little bit better. With that Tennessee example, that's sort of an emphasis point that I'm making, sort of how to message it. But he's absolutely on solid ground scientifically. And the people railing against his stance, against mask requirements for kids, many of whom have been wrong over and over again on COVID, smear him as anti-child, anti-science, which is BS. His position is mainstream, working well in many other nations. So these appeals to the science, which actually isn't the science, within this context has to be read as political. And they view him as a threat to their power, which is why we're seeing him targeted the way we are. That's my read on it. I'm open to being dissuaded, but so far it all seems to be confirming my gut on this. And with that, we will step aside briefly, take a quick break. It's The Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Fox Nation presents podcasts, Women of the Bible Speak. I'm Shannon Bream, host of Fox News at Night and author of the new book, Women of the Bible Speak, the wisdom of 16 women and their lessons for today. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, foxnewspodcast.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. I'm here to announce the completion of our withdrawal from Afghanistan in the end of the military mission to evacuate American citizens, third country nationals, and vulnerable Afghans. The last C-17 lifted off from Hamad Karzai International Airport on August 30th this afternoon at 3.29 p.m. East Coast time. And the last manned aircraft is now clearing the airspace above Afghanistan. Fox News alert on The Guy Benson Show. That was General Kenneth McKenzie announcing, to the surprise of many, The U.S. withdrawal of Afghanistan is now complete 24 hours early. The deadline was tomorrow at 329 Eastern. They got out today. Many Americans will be very pleased to see a 20-year war come to an end. It was popular under President Trump. It's popular under President Biden. The way this has been done at almost every level, the execution of the withdrawal is incomprehensible. And based on what McKenzie has said and what the State Department has said, there are still at least 
hundreds of Americans left stranded in Afghanistan, people who wanted out and we couldn't get them out. Hundreds. I think the number could be higher. Steve Hayes earlier told me this hour he doesn't believe the official number. He thinks that's significantly higher. The president promised we would leave no Americans behind who wanted to leave. That promise is broken. An even bigger promise that's been broken, he promised to get out our Afghan allies, those who are at extreme risk now from the Taliban for reprisals and revenge deaths. And the estimates are in the tens of thousands of people who are stranded and abandoned in Afghanistan. So a full 24 hours early, the U.S. got out. I'm sure there were security concerns at the airport. We know of rockets and threats. You have to wonder, could the 24 hours have been used to get more of our allies and our people out? I guess we'll never know. Another decision was made. The war in Afghanistan is over. The trouble in Afghanistan is not over. Nikki Haley will start our show tomorrow on this very subject. Something completely different coming up. Kirk Herbstreet of ESPN and the happy hour when we come back. New from the Fox News Podcasts Network. My name is Kennedy and welcome to my podcast, which will, I humbly say, single-handedly save the world. You're welcome. It's Kennedy Saves the World. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. Happy Hour here on the Guy Benson Show. From New York City today, glad to have you here. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. The podcast, free, every day, growing in popularity. Thanks to all of you. We are grateful. GuyBensonShow.com. And this hour is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. I had a few of them last night, actually. That's a fun story. We'll get to that in the home stretch later. Log on to TheLongDrink.com. You can find out where it's sold near you. Always drink responsibly. 21 plus only, please. TheLongDrink.com. I am extremely excited to welcome our next guest to the show. Kirk Herbstreit is a guy that I have watched Saturday mornings for years on one of my favorite shows, College Game Day. You all know that I'm a massive college football fan. I'm a diehard Northwestern fan. I bleed purple. Many of you are probably dreading the start of college football season because I'll be talking about Northwestern football far too much for your taste. I'm warning you it's coming. We've got Michigan State rolling in Friday night in Evanston. Go Cats. But Kirk Herbstreit is the premier college football analyst in the country. And he's got a new book out called Out of the Pocket, Football, Fatherhood, and College Game Day Saturdays. And it really is my pleasure to welcome in Kirk Herbstreit. Kirk, thanks so much for doing this. Thanks very much. I appreciate it. So you have done so many of these th- these shows over the years. Do they sort of all bleed together? Or can you remember, for example, the only time I attended College Game Day was when you guys came to Evanston, 2013, I believe it was, for your Buckeyes, a night game, prime time, and it was out on the lake. It was a magical day for me, despite the ultimate outcome of the game in the fourth quarter. 
but I remember it vividly. Do you remember it, or is it hard to sort of pick certain episodes out of the drawer because you've done so many? No, I can recall. You know, I, I, I remember uh, that show. I remember the, the beauty, you know, of you know, they, were, they were just in the process of talking about the facility that they now enjoy and um, the fact that I'm a huge Pat Fitzgerald fan, the head coach at Northwestern, as you know. And, you know, the fact that Ohio State was playing them and it's a Big Ten game at night, which you don't always get a lot of Big Ten games at night, especially in Evanston and and, uh, the the national stage being on that program. And then I was lucky enough not just to do game day, but to call the game uh, that night on ABC. And it ended up being a a very competitive game. So, no, I I remember I don't remember like maybe detail to detail, but I definitely remember the trip. Well, what I remember most about that show was you are scrupulous. Whenever you're calling a game that night, you don't pick the game in the pick at the end of game day because you want to be fair and you want to be balanced and you don't want to, you know, give any impression that you're rooting for anyone. Brent Musburger, who's a Northwestern guy, he was the guest picker, I believe. And they brought him out, and he did not even attempt to try to be impartial. He was in a Northwestern jersey. He picked the Cats. I'm like, that's a very different approach than Herb Street. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And, you know, he's a very different stage in his career, too, uh, at that point. But, um, yeah, and also, how often does he get a chance for college game day to be at his alma mater and He's on as a celebrity picker, so he had no issue at all. You know? <laughs> In fact, he just had, he rolled with it and just kind of had some fun with it. But uh, end up remind me this will see if you have a great memory. You guys had a running back that year, number five, who was a really good player. Um, who I can't remember. He looked like Reggie Bush, kind of. Oh in boy. his uniform. I but, wonder uh, if it was Venerick Mark. He wore number five for yes, a while. I think it was. Yes, it was. Um, but they had, they had, they were right in that game, um, the entire game. And of course, Northwestern last year played Ohio State in the Big Ten Championship and, you know, had some players that have gone on to the NFL. Yep. Um, so that, that, that program, I still think it's very underrated. You know, I think that if you, on a national level, if you say Northwestern, I, do, I just don't think people realize the job that, uh, that Pat has done there and how long. Uh, he's been a, a winner there. Well, he took over the program. We can move on from Northwestern here in a second. He took over <laughs> the program when I was an undergrad because Randy Walker passed away the summer before my senior year. And wow. and then Fitzgerald came in, had a rough first season, not surprisingly. And then, you know, the amount of success and consistency that he's installed in Evanston has been pretty exciting. I have no idea what to expect this year. So many new pieces to put into the puzzle. Uh, but I'll be watching Friday night ESPN, Cats hosting Michigan State. Now, let's talk about the book because I read it over the weekend. There are some stories and anecdotes in your book, Out of the Pocket, Kirk, that I thought were hilarious. One that I chuckled out loud reading was, first of all, I didn't realize as a, you know, scarlet and gray, bleeding Buckeye that you seriously considered going and playing at Michigan. I didn't know that till I read the book. And then you tell the story of your recruiting trip to Michigan, and they're playing Ohio State, and your inner Buckeye just couldn't be contained, (laughs) and you end up storming the field as a Michigan recruit after Ohio State wins the game. That is priceless. Yeah, yeah, I'm there as a Michigan recruit with my name tag on and and in my own head knowing that I'm a Buckeye and went there 
sat up with the, all the rest of the uh, the players, you know, that were high school recruits. And yet I'm watching this game, and it was the game, the infamous game, where Earl Bruce had already been fired, and he wore a fedora and a full suit. And the, the players that game wore headbands that said Earl on them, and they were trying to go out, even though they had they didn't have a great year. They were trying to go out and basically win the game for him, so he could go out a winner. And you know that game's always emotional, and Ohio State ends up uh, winning that game late. And a lot of their fans started to pour out onto the field in Ann Arbor, in Michigan. And I'm caught up, like the <laughs> ten year old Kirk is caught up in the whole thing, and. I'm I'm seeing all those fans run down there, and I'm in the Michigan section, and I just take off, and I start running down onto the field uh, to celebrate with the uh, with the Ohio State fans and the Ohio State players with my Michigan name tag on, jumping up and down on the on the players fired up that Ohio State had won the game. You talk a lot about that rivalry in your book, and of course, it's one of the greatest in college sports. You also talk about the tribalism of sports and sports fans. And I can relate this a little bit to what we do here on politics. It's gotten increasingly tribal. And of course, sports by definition is sort of tribal, but you have the mainstream people who are, you know, voters for one party or another, or rooting for one team or another. Then there's always a, a relatively small group of folks who will sometimes take it too far and you relay examples of you know Tennessee fans sort of abusing you guys on college game day because they felt like you guys had a bias against them, and you've had stuff thrown at you, things said on the street. The saddest part, I remember when this happened, was when you felt like you had to move your family out of Ohio because there were people who questioned your loyalty, which is insane, uh, because you were just trying to do your job as an analyst. And I wonder sort of what you make of that and how you try to – maybe compartmentalize some people who take the game too seriously and go too far without losing your love of the game and the fan base and the state? Well, I think first things first is there's an appreciation from me that there's a passion that's that strong for the sport. Like I I think part of the success that we've enjoyed on college game day, and this would be my 26th year on the show. Wow. And, you know, we, 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 uh, we'll have a, a you know, game day and we'll have, I don't know, eight to 10,000, 15,000 people around our set. And the game's not till eight o'clock at night. And they just, they love the show. They love the sport. So that passion uh, for the sport, I think is the greatest in the United States. I don't think the NFL has that. I don't think, uh, NBA, I don't think MLB, I don't think any other sport can do what we do as far as, you know, you go to these tailgates and you go around the energy of these college campuses. It's incredible. So I, I would say the majority of me appreciates and understands the passion that the fans have. Now there's always going to be radicals, you know, they're, they're radicals in every walk of life they kind of ruin it for the rest of us. And that's what you're referring to. Yep. You know, it's, it's like that vocal minority that um, they, you know, I could say a sentence, I could say literally, Hey, I hope everybody has a, a great uh, Monday afternoon. People will be like, I can't, you know, what do you have against Tuesday? You know, it's, 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 you, know, you know what I mean? Like they just, no matter what you say, they're upset. And so once you do it, uh, you know, I'm older now. I've experienced a lot. Once you realize these people hate themselves, they hate their lives. If they're not mad at me, 
they're mad at someone else. Like they just, they're vile. They're just constantly toxic. Everything around them is toxic. And then I think you start to realize, wow, there's a fraction of people that no matter what, they're just going to be upset. Yep. And you don't take it personally. And I think when I moved my family, I, I was hurt because I'm a pleaser by nature. I was hurt that there was even a fraction of Ohio State fans that didn't understand. Of course, I love Ohio State, but I got a job to do mm-hmm. and I'm going to be objective. And I think it was more of at that time, peace of mind. I had four young boys and my wife and I just thought it'd be better to maybe get off a little bit of the beaten path. If I went through that experience again in 2021, I probably wouldn't move my family. You know, there's not a playbook for living in the public eye. And once you experience a decade of of having kids and being around it, you kind of become callous somewhat. And so you have um, to be. I mean, you have to be. I am. You have to be, yeah, to to have sanity over everything, (laughs) because I always come from a very, you know, if you listen to me, I'm not like a guy on TV or radio that throws things against the wall or tries to stir up trouble, you know, like just tries to be a guy that's like, you're not a hot, you're not a hot take dispenser, right? Not a hot take guy. I'm not a, let's watch, let's see what, let's see how they react to this one. Watch this. Like, I'm the opposite of that. You know, I try to be a voice of reason. I try to be a guy that's incredibly overprepared. You may disagree with what I'm saying, but I don't really say very many things that are going to make you like take it personally or get upset. And yet, you know, there I was with people that were, you know, getting getting personal. Like and, I walked and by the way, the just 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 to jump in, them across the face, and, and just to jump in, I think it can be very frustrating. And some of what you're saying is really resonating with me and the job that I do and some of the feedback I occasionally get. But I think what you do and why you've been successful is because many, many, many more of us appreciate that, right? And we vastly outnumber sort of the screamers. And as soon as you can make peace with that and recognize it and then move forward, which you have, uh, I think, you know, all the better for your career and everything else. Now, you invoked your wife there a moment ago. You tell a story in the book, Out of the Pocket, about (laughs) a great game day tradition on the show, Lee Corso at the end. God knows what he's going to do from week to week. Is he going to shoot a gun? Is he going to terrify you in some new way? He puts on the headgear. I don't think he's ever put on Willie the Wildcat yet. But maybe no. one day, how did that tradition start and how did your wife play a role in it? Yeah, my wife uh, cheered at Ohio State. And when uh, I started on the show in 1996, she was an alum. And we traveled early that year, maybe third or fourth week of the season. We traveled to Columbus. And Lee Corso asked me, do you mind asking Allison if she'll ask the cheerleading coach if I can wear Brutus for my pick, I want to put the Brutus headgear on. So I asked Allison, she asked Judy, Judy said, came back and said, no. So I said, Hey coach, sorry. Allison asked, they said, no. So a couple of days went by now it's like Thursday. He called me again. He's like, please one more. This is going to be great. Just go back. Maybe ask the athletic director, Andy Geiger, whatever. We got to make this happen. So we kept talking to people. Finally, then they're very protective of these headgears, by the way. I mean, oh, it's not yeah. like an easy, easy thing. They're very protective. And finally, Andy Geiger, who was the athletic director, he green lighted it. And so we went on the set and back then the show was only an hour. And at the end, he it was Ohio State, Penn State. And he said, you know what? I got nothing to say. And he just slammed on this head, this Brutus uh, head. And that here he is with his suit and tie and he's doing like the, 
the, the, the, the queen. The queen's wave, wave you know? yeah. yeah. Yeah, and he's just got this little Brutus headgear on, and people went crazy. And the next week, and from that point on, pretty much everywhere we've been, with the exception of Michigan, where they don't, they don't have a mascot head, or Auburn doesn't let him put on their mascot head. Everywhere else we've been, He's he's put on a mascot uh, mascot head on for about 25 years now, and it's become, you know, a part of the part of the uh, the, the landscape of college football. And, and it's the last, uh, yeah, it's ridiculous, which is why it's so fun. It, it looks so absurd, and right. yet you're so used to it now. It's like, oh yeah, of course, there's this uh, older gentleman wearing this felt uh, animal head on top of his suit, yeah. right? Because it's it's what you do. It's what happens at the end of every episode of Game Day. And Kirk, let's take a quick break. My guest is Kirk Herbstreet of ESPN, his new book out, Out of the Pocket. We're having him on as college football season begins. Very appropriate. We will continue our conversation on the other side of this break on The Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. More next. It's the Hammer Time Podcast. Fox News Channel's Bill Hammer takes you one-on-one with engaging personalities covering the critical issues of the day. Find Hammer Time now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. Happy hour on The Guy Benson Show. Glad to have you along. Very glad to have my guest here as well. Kirk Herbstreit is out with a new book, Out of the Pocket. It's his memoir. He is a huge fixture on ESPN, the top analyst in college football, at least in my book. I think most people would agree. And we have him here talking about the book, talking about college football. It's pretty cool to have him. And Kirk, reading the book, it really struck me how much affection and respect you have for the guys on this team, uh, the, the game day team, Lee Corso, of course, the coach. For many years, Chris Fowler, who's now moved on to play-by-play, and you guys work together in that capacity, just like a total pro. I've always looked up to him. Reese Davis we have on this show from time to time. We we love Reese. And that's got to make it all the more of a joy for you to show up to work, not only to go out into these you know passionate crowds and talk about what you love, but actually working with guys that you genuinely love. Well, I, I, I've got a philosophy on on studio television, and really, really radio as well. And I, and I think it has everything to do with when you work with people because the camera's on you. When you work with people that that you, as you say, genuinely love, uh, you enjoy the meetings. You know, the, on Friday, you enjoy going to dinners on Friday nights. You enjoy your time together. And I think when it's real, the camera really can pick that up. You know, they, you, they can pick up the smiles at each other, the, you know, the, the hand gestures, the pats on the back. Right. It's you authentic. Know, we, we, it's very real, and it's not pretend. And I, I think, you know, not only that, I think the, the, the people in the truck, you know, they, they love college football. That's the one common bond we all have is our love for college football and how much we cherish it and how much we want to take care of it. And so um, – you know, I, I think, you know, it's, it's it's cool that you can see that and feel that. And we've lost some great people and we've added some great people. But I think the, the word family, sometimes it's overused. But if you ever get around game day, and you get kind of behind the scenes. You would feel like it's it's kind of one big family. The guys uh, that are camera guys on our desk, those guys feel just as much a part of our show 
as the guys that are on the air. So, and all the guys in the truck, the same thing. So, yeah, we're we're, we're very lucky to to all work together and all enjoy one another's company. And that really does come through on the air. You can tell. One more segment with Kirk Herbstreet, my guest from ESPN. His new book is Out of the Pocket. We continue and finish our conversation straight ahead. Guy Benson. Welcome back. It's the Guy Benson Show. It's the happy hour, and I am pleased to have Kirk Herbstreet here with us. You see him all the time on ESPN. And now you have the opportunity to read his new book, Out of the Pocket. I did so over the weekend. I really enjoyed it. And, Kirk, I just want to point out that you did mention radio briefly in the last segment. You did get your on-air start in radio, which we love to see here on the radio program. I just want to throw that out there. Last question, Kirk. It's about college football, this game that you love, that you say that you want to protect. And you're such a great ambassador. I'm not blowing smoke. You're a great ambassador for the game. I'm a hardcore college football fan. I didn't grow up that way. I grew up in the New York area. Didn't really have a team. I didn't understand people who were really into college sports. I thought that was strange. Other parts of the country yeah. did that. And then I went to Northwestern and got bitten by the bug. And it's you know never looked back since. I look at realignment. I look at what's happening with the SEC now adding these powerhouses from the Big 12. And now this whole sort of um, chain reaction of conversations around the country about more realignment. And now you're getting players who are going to be compensated for their likeness and their names. And again, I think that that's, there, there's a fairness there, and I believe in free markets. But I also look at this and I say, gosh, could this game be changing irrevocably? And do I like that as a traditionalist? And I wonder how you puzzle through some of those things as someone who loves the game so much. Well, I think anytime there's ch- change, let alone all the change at once, there's a knee-jerk reaction. It's just human nature to take a step back and say, whoa, wait a second. Like this is one of the things I cherish what's happening. And I think that's, that's to be expected as we've lived about eight weeks now, name, image, and likeness. You know, I don't see these drastic changes so far. There've been about 1500 transactions, the average about $923, which is still real money and good money. Good for them. I, I didn't come from money. That would have been great if I were in college, but it's not the way people are describing millions of dollars. Right. You know, it's, it's just not, that's just not true. Um, and, and you're right. It is it is a different world and a free market, and that, that's that's we're just going to kind of keep watching that. My biggest fear is, you know, this alliance now with the Big Ten, the Pac-12, and the ACC was a response to Greg Sankey, the commissioner of the SEC, bringing in Texas and Oklahoma. I think their feelings were hurt, and they kind of circled the wagons together and said, okay, the three of us can outvote the SEC in their one vote, no matter how big and strong they are. They only have one vote, so when we vote on issues. That's the three of us, like the show The Survivor. Mm-hmm. The three of us and we'll will vote them off the island. Yeah, yeah. Well, exactly. We'll always win, no matter what's going on. Expansion, you know, playoff expansion, whatever it might be. I think that's where we are. My fear is they have to get in the same room together. Like at some point, they got to put their feelings aside. And for all of us as fans, the players, most importantly, it, for us to be able to enjoy college football. You can't be regionalized. You know, the SEC can't go play on their own island. You know, the, the, these, this new alliance can't go play on their own island. Like, everybody has to be together. And so the leaders of college football have got some big, big decisions to make, and they need to come together and not allow 
some things that have happened to kind of separate them and divide them. So I think we can overcome a lot of the other changes and be okay. And I, and I, I just worry about um, the leadership and I worry about the perception of money, 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 NFL, NFL, money, money. And like what we, you and I, and all of us love about college football is the pageantry, yes. the tailgating, the marching band, yes. you know, the sense of community. I don't want minor league. I don't want minor you know, league we football. We, we, that's not an option. We can't have that. That's not, not, it cannot happen. And that's where these decision makers have got to protect the game and not let that happen. Kirk Herbstreet, his new book is Out of the Pocket. Football, fatherhood, we didn't even get into that, and, and your dad's battle with Alzheimer's. That's something that my family has dealt with. I just really appreciated uh, what you had to say in the book. I'll con- I will finish the subtitle. Football, fatherhood, and college game day Saturdays. And, Kirk, before I let you go, pick them. Friday night, under the lights, ESPN, Sparty, at Ryan Field. They come rolling in. Who you got? I, I'm not just saying this because um, because you're an alum, but I think Northwestern <laughs> at home, even though they got a new quarterback and coming off a big year, I think Michigan State's still rebuilding, and so they got a lot of transfers in. But I don't think it'll be enough. I think I think you'll be happy. I think you get your first win of the year and start one and zero. From your lips to God's ears, I hope that happens. I'll be watching Kirk Herbstreet. Really appreciate you taking some time and talking about the book and talking about college football. It's a personal thrill to chat with you over the air, and hopefully we'll catch up again someday. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me on. You bet. Kirk Herbstreet, analyst at ESPN, especially on College Game Day. That's sort of the signature show, and his book is out of the pocket, available now. And he picked the cats for Friday night. I'm happy about that. I really hope he's right. And, of course, I'll be tuning in like a lunatic watching the entire game, living and dying. And then hopefully we'll get to see his analysis the next day on College Game Day, Saturday morning. When we come back, the home stretch here on The Guy Benson Show. My voice may sound just a tiny bit hoarse today. That's because I did a lot of cheering and singing last night at a music festival. I never go to music festivals. I'd never been to one before, but I got invited. I couldn't resist this opportunity. It was pretty awesome. That's why I'm here in New York doing the show today. We'll explain, and Curious Christine will make an appearance when we come back. It's the Guy Benson Show. Energetic, informed, fast-paced. Guy Benson Show. Home stretch on the Guy Benson Show. And if you're listening on the broadcast, you are hearing a song that was, for quite some time, our show open. It was the start of every show, and now it's just in our normal rotation of bumpers. And whenever I hear it, I get like an extra jolt of adrenaline because it just triggers something in my brain like Pavlov's dog. That, oh, the show's starting. Even though this is the last segment of the show, that's Born to Be Yours by Kygo, who's this massive DJ with a huge following. And we actually play a lot of his stuff in our bumper music because I think it's very catchy. And it's the perfect way to begin our segment here about the experience Adam and I had last night. So on Thursday, I believe it was, I got a text from my buddy Evan, who runs the long drink, our sponsor in the happy hour. Finished long drink, really delicious. He said, hey, are you in New York this Sunday by any chance? I said, no, I'm in D.C. We've got friends in town. They're leaving Sunday morning. Why? He said, well, there's this music festival. There's a Kygo concert out in the Hamptons, and we've got VIP access to it, and it's going to be a really cool crew, and Long Drink is sponsoring it, and just thought it might be fun. 
And my first reaction was, is there any way you could get two tickets? Because if I show up to a Kygo concert without Adam, who is a big Kygo fan, I like Kygo. I like his music. I enjoy a lot of his collaborations with, you know, huge artists, past and present. But I'm not a super fan. My husband is a super fan. And I told him, I believe my exact quote in the text was, if I were to do this without him, he might consider murdering me. (laughs) So he said, let me get back to you. Let me work on it. So the next day he said, I can get you guys both in, but we're finalizing the list and we just need to know. So I said, yeah, we're doing it. I told Adam he was literally jumping up and down with excitement. He was so happy. He was texting his friends. So we drove from D.C. up to New York, parked in Manhattan, and then got a driver out to the Hamptons. Now, I had, prior to yesterday, never been, A, to a music festival of any sort. I'd been to concerts, but never a music festival, not really my scene. B, I had never been to the Hamptons. I grew up in the New York area, never went to the Hamptons. Because generally, if you are a beach person in the New York area, you will typically either be a Jersey Shore person or a Hamptons person or Cape Cod people or have some other place, Outer Banks, North Carolina. There's a few other options. But generally, you go to one of these places, and that's your spot. And that was us. We were Cape Cod people. We almost never went down the shore, even though my mom grew up with summers down the shore. We didn't really do that. We'd always go to the Cape, never to the Hamptons. I'd never been out there, which is sort of wild. So I said, this is a cool opportunity. Get some long drink, meet some people. Some of the co-founders of the company from Finland were going to be there. A few other people that I wanted to meet. I could do something pretty great for Adam and we've got our anniversary coming up and I said all right so we did it and I will say it was at the airport in West Hampton so occasionally like jets would fly in or helicopters would fly overhead but the music was so loud you could not hear the helicopter that's how loud the music was what I liked about the festival was it was not terribly crowded I think it's because they had gotten us in this like VIP section but you had this little couch they had little couch areas outdoors and then Waiters and waitresses who would come and just refill whatever drinks you wanted. And they had food trucks. So there was a Greek food truck that had legitimately delicious gyros, and that was included in the price. So we had unlimited long drink. There were some tequila shots happening. There was beer. There was wine. And I was just making sure that I was drinking a huge amount of water the entire time as well. But, you know, to get into it and dance and sing along, like, I was definitely having some fun. It became a Sunday fun day, which I almost never do. And this is why we had gotten the driver, by the way. We'd gotten the car to and from the event because I said, you know, if I have a few drinks, I don't want to be driving. We ended up having such a great time. Everyone was great in this group. We all got along very well. We arrived just in time to see Zed perform. And Zed has a couple pretty big songs. Like Meet Me in the Middle is one of the big hits from Zed. I will say it's a little strange to go to a concert for a DJ, right? Because it's not really a live performance per se. They had a few elements of it, but a lot of it's just seeing like, you know, the pyrotechnics and the blasts of steam and the cool designs on the jumbotrons and that whole thing. 
And it was definitely a sensory experience and it was fun. The music was good. But it's not like you're seeing people singing or playing musical instruments, which is what I typically sort of associate with why you go to a concert. Instead of seeing a guy sort of like up on a stand pumping his fist as he presses play on a song. Right? Although he, it's more complicated than that. I'm not trying to diminish it. Obviously, it's a hugely popular thing because, I mean, there were thousands and thousands of people at this concert. So Zed had a few songs that we knew and, and had some fun remixes of some things. And then Kygo was going to come on. He was the final big main act. But before he came out, something very unexpected happened. Someone was introduced, a local official out in Suffolk County in Long Island. And this person came out with a microphone onto the stage and started talking to the crowd. And I wasn't really sure, does this really happen at musical festivals where it's sort of like now let's hear from a local elected official or a government official. But they were raising money through this event for first responders and for Gold Star families. And he talked about how the 20th anniversary of 9-11 is coming up. Of course, Long Island and that whole community was devastated by 9-11, as were so many counties and towns all around the New York City area. He said, we're just days away from the 20-year anniversary of this horrible attack. And he also mentioned what just happened in Afghanistan with the 13 troops who were killed. And he mentioned, we can enjoy these types of events, this kind of fun here at home because of heroes like that. And he was shouting out individual first responder families and Gold Star families. And it was really moving. And at first I was sort of worried, are people going to respond well to this? Because, you know, you've got people, they've been sort of drinking all day. They want to see Kygo. They're there to have a good time. And then you've got someone up there with a microphone talking about 9-11 and, you know, the Afghanistan drawdown and uh, troops being killed. People were paying attention. It's not like everyone's just milling around. People were listening. There was really strong applause for some of these points. Big applause for the Gold Star families. Big cheers for this very important point that we enjoy the freedoms here because of the brave men and women who put their lives on the line to serve us. That got a huge ovation. There were chants breaking out of USA, which I was not expecting at the Kygo concert. I'll just be honest. But it happened. It was really cool. And it put things in perspective. Because part of me felt a little bit guilty being at something this fun, having been through the last two weeks of news cycles, and it's just been really dreary and really horrible and so sad and angering. And I've been on social media talking about it on the air, talking about it, writing at townhall.com. And then I was posting stuff on my social. Oh, here I am, and we're at a concert, and isn't this fun, and I love this song. But you have to live your life. You have to appreciate the blessings in front of you. But I think it's also incumbent to not lose sight of those who secure those liberties on your behalf, especially after the last week or two. And this moment, this brief set of remarks by this official in Suffolk County brought that home, brought the mood down a little bit, but not in like a buzzkill kind of way, but in a serious kind of way. And then out came Kygo, and it was just this little interlude that I did not see coming, but I was very gratified to see the response and the reception. That's how it should be. And Kygo was great. I mean, so many hits, and I did a whole story on my Instagram 
So if you want to follow me, I strongly recommend following me. Twitter is more political, Guy P. Benson. Instagram, much less political, almost never political. Also Guy P. Benson. And I have little snippets of various songs along the way. And then out of nowhere, like halfway through his set, Kygo brings onto the stage Jimmy Buffett. What? And Jimmy had his guitar and he actually performed and sang and played a guitar. I'm like, okay, I like this. I've always sort of wanted to go to a Jimmy Buffett concert. I'm not really a parrot head. I'm not sure if I want to go to a whole Jimmy Buffett concert, but to see him in person, he's a legend, singing Margaritaville, very different song than what you're used to hearing at these, like, what do they call EDM-type concerts. But who doesn't know that song? Everyone's shouting, salt, salt, right? And it was it was really cool. And... Then we we took off a little bit early to beat the traffic back to the city because I did not want to be stuck in traffic at this airport just trying to get out. And we maybe did a little pit stop after all of our long drinks at McDonald's. So that came in clutch. And here I am in the city today. And that is a very atypical Sunday for me. But it was awesome. I had a great time. I want to share the experience. Christine, less than a minute. You, You just seem like you're chomping at the bit with questions. I have so many questions here and not enough time. Rapid fire. Okay. You were dancing? I was doing a little bit of dancing. Is Coachella next? No. Burning Man next? No. How was the traffic? You don't seem like someone that sits well in traffic. We got out early, so it was fine. Any celebrity sightings besides yourself? Myself? (laughs) Uh, No. Although I got to give a shout out to Mike from Long Drink. He hooked us up with some rainbow long drink koozies. He's a New Jersey representative for long drink. I'm like, I've got a friend in New Jersey that you need to know, but she might drink all of your product. Last I, won't, I won't name names, though. Go ahead. Where was my invite? I had to pull strings to get my husband there. So sorry, Cookie. You also could have paid to come to the Kygo concert. You could have been in the cheap seats just being the woo girl. Would you have recognized, like, would you have acknowledged if I was there the whole time? I'd be like, <laughs> Guy, it's me, it's in Cookie. In your full, like, Woodstock get up like hey i think that woman keeps trying to get your attention guy oh i don't know who that is security security if we can just (laughs) and it was great it was fantastic so i wanted to end the show on a high note to kirk herb street and kygo for a monday that's an awfully happy happy hour but we try to be serious here as well it's a balance it's a balancing act we appreciate you being with us every single day back here tomorrow from dc on the guy benson show Listen to be part of the conversation with me, Brian Kilmeade. I'll talk about the biggest stories of the day and get your take along with some of the biggest newsmakers around. Listen live on the Fox News app or get the podcast at BrianKilmeadeShow.com. I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in freefall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.